Introducing the new era of digital identity with Socure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why Socure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. Socure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, Socure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with Socure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit Socure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Fundamentally, I think that it is the number one priority for people accessing systems remotely. You should have some type of single sign-on, identity access management, verification. We've seen that with unemployment insurance, how how big of a challenge that was. We've cha- we've finally fixed that in 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 states, which is I think the you know a, a big big undertaking, but but it has accomplished. But it should permeate across all of our citizen-facing systems. Uh, we should have that capability, and it should be tied to a validated identity. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And since NASIO released their top 10 priorities from their annual uh, Chief Information Officer survey, I've really just been looking forward to doing a show where I can debrief these. I think there's so much to go into. I'm really interested in kind of where a lot of these come from. But what I'm most interested in is to get the reaction of somebody who has been in the seat. And that's kind of what has made me pause a little bit and finding the right person. And I think I found the right person. I'm bringing on Charles Grindle, Chuck Grindle, who is the the former Chief Information Officer for the Commonwealth of Kentucky. But before then, um, had a long service in the military, and he brought that structure into the state of Kentucky. And since he left um, that CIO role, he's been at Amazon Web Services, and now he's at Proofpoint, um, doing great things, still serving government just from the other side, but really happy to have him on and glad we can walk through these. So Chuck, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Brian, I really appreciate it. and glad to join the huddle today. Absolutely. This is going to be a lot of fun. And in full disclosure, normally these are a lot more structured, but today I am just looking forward to having a conversation with 
Chuck about some of these things. And my first question to you is, Chuck, when you saw these, what was your first reaction to kind of these priorities? Did they get them right? Did they get them wrong? Would you have mixed them up? What, what are your thoughts? I think when you first look at it, I think one of the things that stands out um, is the fact that we've got a tie right at the top. You know, number one and number two, cybersecurity risk management and digital government and digital services essentially tied for number one. It's really the first time in a long time that we actually had a tie, even if, uh, to my knowledge, we haven't. So, so cybersecurity has always been number one, at least during my time frame. But first off, having a tie. I think the second thing uh, has to do with two two important topics, and that's number one, people, people centric. Kind of, you look at these and and their the constituents that we serve. Uh, these are really focused on the constituents, and how do we provide better services to the constituents? And then secondly. It's about the data, right? Whether whether we're talking about the risk of that data, whether we're talking about how we're going to better serve that data up, or how we're going to use you know newer technologies to be able to understand that data. It's really about the data, um, and so that's that's really what stands out to me, at least in the first, you know, four, five, six uh, items that we have there. Yeah, I think the first thing that anybody who goes to this list probably sees is exactly what you said. There's a tie at the top, and I can't remember if there ever was one or when the last time it was. But I think what that also says is that digital government, digital services quickly becoming more top of mind for CIOs. I don't think it's something that was lost on you when you were in seat. I think it's always been important, but the fact that it's caught cybersecurity tied for the lead, I think is, is something that's really important. And then the other thing that I also thought when I saw all of these, and I've thought this for a long time, is just how interrelated all of these really are because you could look at any of these and say they're important. And I think you look at number three and we're going to go through this list and we're going to talk through them, but artificial intelligence, right? Well, last year was really the year of AI, right? So that, that easily could have landed at number one, but it just shows you how interrelated all of these are. They all weave together from the workforce side of things to the constituent side of things, to the security side of things. You can't really have one without the other. And I think that's really important. So let's jump into the first one, right? I mean, you're you're at Proofpoint right now. This is obviously something that's important to you. Um, and I, I would imagine when you were uh, in seat in Kentucky, cybersecurity was something that was was really top of mind because I mean, you were I mean, you're getting attacked all the time, right? You have to you have all this PII on all of your all of your citizens and residents of Kentucky. So I think risk management and cybersecurity was certainly important. So but what are some of the thoughts here initially? Well, I think it goes back to the focus largely um, kind of from the federal government on down. When you're looking at things like the SEC now requiring organizations that are publicly traded to report on whether they have a breach or not, it becomes this uber focus on cybersecurity and risk management. You look at the insurance industry now that's requiring certain elements of risk management or certain security controls that are on our data or accessing our data. So therefore, you know, there is this uber focus on protecting the data. And then what is your risk? And do you have defense in depth 
related to your data. What, just one control anymore is not necessarily enough. And we've seen that time and time again with the releases of, of different folks getting hacked. So understand your risk, the ability to mitigate your risk, and then the ability to respond to the things that you know are challenges within your organization, I think are really important. And it, and it continues to be important at number one. I think risk management is an important aspect here. It's cybersecurity and risk management. And I think I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen the evolution of state ramp, right? I think all the different all the different C-level uh, leaders within government and, and program leaders understand how important it is to, to lock down and secure those things. And really having uh, a risk management framework like state ramp and obviously evolved from your text ramps and others, but having that sort of standardized baseline like they do with FedRAMP, with the uh, U.S. federal government, I think has really helped, especially in allowing some of these enterprises to bring on maybe technologies that they wouldn't have been able to in the past because of the risk, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, from my days in the federal government, as you mentioned, you know, FedRAMP was really important. State ramp, uh, the initiation of it allowed organizations, especially smaller companies, to not have to go through that more laborious process of FedRAMP, but but achieve a certain set of standards. And then, you know, TexRAMP or, you know, Texas, what the Texas DIR has done is, is allowed within Texas, and we actually looked at a lot of products that were on TexRamp, the ability to evaluate those products, be able to meet a certain level of you know, standard uh, across their product suite, and then have the monitoring capability across them. Because at the end of the day, you know, being able to evaluate the risk of any application third part, and then have a third party take a look and say, yes, we believe you're meeting those controls on a regular basis is really important when you're getting ready to procure. And then the overall risk management strategy, I will tell you the the in, in the Commonwealth, uh, I felt it was so important risk or privacy that one of the things that I did was I pulled uh, that portion of it and created the chief privacy officer and some other states now are replicating that. So you have the chief information security officer that's uber focused on that defense in depth and protecting the, the data that's stored. And then you've got the, the privacy officer, the, the risk officer that's actually evaluating that risk along those different types of HIPAA, FERPA, CGIS, Pub 1075, so that we know that um, that we're protecting our data and we know that we can meet our audits, which typically occur within every state for those systems. Yeah, I think we've seen the evolution of kind of these agencies bringing on chief privacy officers. And I think you were probably on the front end of that. I had uh, Chris Bird on, uh, actually, it was about a year or two ago now from CISA, who's the chief privacy officer. And I think he was one of the first that I kind of saw, this is going to be a trend, right? You could see how much a lot of what he did was woven into the fabric of the entire organization and you could just tell this was something that was going to advance. So let's move into let's move into the uh let's call it 1B the tie here. Um digital government and digital services. I think this is well and let me have a let me ask you a question. Do you think that this would have gotten to the top of this list if it weren't for the pandemic shining a light on, or not even just shining a light, but driving everything digital from necessity. Do you think it would have gotten 
to that level? I I don't think as quickly as it has, right? I think I think you you have to have a catalytic event in in order to make a, a significant change. And you look at COVID, the forcing of people to work remotely and then get their services remotely. Um, that to me was the event that caused folks to start to move towards you know digital or online services or app-based services. And I think it's a change that we will never go back before, right? Because, you know, people now are in that digital space. They've got devices at their fingertips all the time, whether it's phones, whether it's, you know, some type of tablet, whether it's a computer, they have those devices. Um, and it, and I, I coined this phrase, the era of immediacy. So I, I don't know if anybody else has said that, but, but essentially it's it, right? When you want to find out something, when you want to do something, you want it to be at your fingertips. And so COVID caused us to start to put services out there in the era of immediacy so that we can have it at our fingertips. And so I think that's a it's great. I think it's constituent serving. We now have the, be, the ability to be at the edge of the pointy spear. However, we still have to look at 1A, right? And make sure that we're doing it correctly because our, our acceleration into 1B has caused us to make sure that we're reflecting on 1A and providing the right standard security around it, the right, whether it's multi-factor authentication, et cetera, to ensure that those applications are secure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that it clearly personifies kind of exactly what we were talking about, right? Everything is interwoven. And when you do expand and you do drive everything to a digital footprint as quickly as you did, it obviously advances and proliferates your attack vector, right? So you have to make sure everything is locked down. And I, I can imagine that has to be something that certainly kept you up at night while you were while you were in Kentucky, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we you you've got to look at you know an enterprise plan, right? And you know, Governor Bevin said to me one of my initial meetings. I don't want to be on the front page of the Washington Post, right? <laughs> I don't think any governor out there wants to be on the front page. And so so you uber focus on, hey, what is the right thing to deliver securely that benefits the constituents and doesn't elevate your risk? If you can hit that point and with those elements, you, you are really providing a service for the constituents that they'll continue to come back for. Before we move away from this one, I mean, I, I see this one as such an important, uh, important aspect of these priorities. I have one more question for you. When you when you were in your CIO role, and then also now that you've moved into private industry, how much have you? How much did you prioritize, and how much are you seeing prioritization around putting the citizen at the center of the? the building of service delivery. And and I know human-centered design has been something that has been around for a while and government's really enveloping it, uh, it seems like, in, in, in best practice. But I think we're still far off, even though the technology can support it, we're far off where we could be around like predictive services and all of that. I, I sometimes I'll call it like the Amazon-like experience. How much did you see that when you were in Kentucky and how much are you even seeing it now evolve where that citizen is in the center and you're you're understanding more and more about them and what that what that journey really looks like 
Yeah, I think from the from the start as as a CIO, when you go into the chair, your first thing is just to evaluate technology, evaluate where you are, you know, what services you have, what is the age, what are the processes that you have, and you know, and then getting really a, a strategy in place that that folks can follow. Um, you know, hopefully, if my my former team is listening to this, they knew that we had four lines of effort, and then we had action plans that would support that. But it really was the first time I sat down with the legislature and talked to them about the strategy. And then the discussion I had with them about how we were impacting the citizens, you know, whether it be, you know, and how we were providing services, making sure number one, it was less costly, or number two, how we were better providing services at the edge of the sphere. And so, from that, going back then and taking a look at how we were delivering things became a focus. You know, Governor Bevan was really focused on healthcare and how we were delivering that to the citizens. So it aligned very well with can we be citizen, workforce, healthcare focus to get it out to them so that we could deliver it out in the counties, et cetera, and providing the technology. So, you know, I would say, you know, initially probably first 30, 60 days, you're, you're uber focused on the environment, but then, you know, after that it becomes, how can we better serve? And, and, you know, really COVID has accelerated that for a lot of the, the newer CIOs. Makes a lot of sense. No, thank you for that. All right, let's move into number three. I mean, I mentioned last year, is unequivocally or was unequivocally the year of AI. And here we have artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotic process automation um, in kind of locked down the number three spot. Um, tell me a little bit about your thoughts around where you see AI really supporting government mission across, of, across this, because obviously it's important. Um, some would say that a lot of these technologies aren't quite there yet, but we all we all know there's some shadow IT happening, and I'm sure there's folks using ChatGPT to support their process. Um, but where you see AI having maybe the biggest impact, and how do you think it will have a bigger impact moving forward in government? I think from the I think from the government perspective, it's it becomes the things that we can do routinely, right? Do the routine things routinely. So where you do have a process that can be routinely done. I think that's where, you know, machine learning, you know, subset of, of AI, machine learning can really help out. I think when you look at artificial intelligence and you look at larger data sets and understanding that data set, being able to turn, you know, an, an AI engine onto a larger data set to kind of make heads or tails of where things are going or, or the direction of things like where, you know, if you bring together things like your your mapping or GIS data, along with maybe some drug addiction challenges, et cetera, and start to look and collate where that is occurring, uh, can be really helpful to planning, uh, et cetera. And then, and then really, you know, look statistically at where, you know, money can be properly spent, let's say for, you know, for uh, incoming uh, economic development, the ability to bring together data, et cetera, from disparate sources, and then be able to determine where the best place to put a manufacturing facility, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of different uses for it. 
I think we we are using some of that machine learning already in some of the SaaS applications that we have, whether it be help desk technology, whether it be um, you know in in being able to process some of our applications like tax returns, et cetera. But I think it just can get better, right? And you know, in the term generative AI or you know using uh, assistance, I think I think. From the basic steps, you know, tier zero, maybe tier one help desk stuff, that will be really important. But at the end of the day, it's very helpful to have an individual that's there that can support and understand, you know, and help train the model and help work work through things. So I think our workforce is going to become, you know, a little bit more advanced and, and more comfortable with the technology. And then and then allow us. I think and, and you know, just as a side, I think we're one of the things that we can potentially use it for is perhaps looking for things like fraud. Um, I think if you look at, let's say, you know, some of the organizations that would be supporting a larger state where you may have one or two people that are looking after things, our ability to, to look at a larger data set and maybe see if there's fraud out there, you know, maybe, maybe with constituent data or with, you know, healthcare uh, in in how the applications are being filed, et cetera. I think that would be a, an opportunity that we we haven't looked at. And and I think it's something we should should uh, certainly take a, a sharper look at within government. Yeah, I think, I mean, just uh, personally being at SoCare, I mean, we talked to a lot of CIOs, um, not just at the state level, obviously the federal level and and program levels too. And I think there's when they when they see the ability to kind of weave AI into the fabric of a, a fraud mitigation engine, um, I think sometimes the responses are like, "Why haven't we done this sooner?" Um, so I'm excited to see kind of what the what the impact it can really truly have when you start kind of revving that engine up. Um, let's move into number four. This is one that I mean this this term sometimes drives me crazy. Um, it's up there with IT modernization. It's legacy modernization. Um, it, tell me a little bit about your thoughts here. And and the reason why I'm, this one drives me crazy is I, I see this as sort of like, uh, well, here let, let me let me give you my let me give you my example of of how I describe the difference between kind of strategic digital transformation and IT modernization. When I when I think of IT modernization. I'm looking. I'm looking outside right now. I'm looking at. Uh, I'm looking at my cars in the driveway, and for me, IT modernization is okay. I I have an old car. I need to go get a new car. I'm just going to go upgrade this car to get the next model, right? It's it's ten years old, or in the government's it's government's uh, example, it's forty, fifty years old. Um, I need to go get a new one, so I'm just going to get whatever the newest model of this is, and that to me is kind of. IT modernization or legacy modernization. And then when I think of digital transformation, I look at it and say, okay, well, I have a, I have a two door, uh, coupe, right. But I, I now have a kid and I might want to have another kid. And I think I, my hobbies have changed a little bit since I bought this car and now I might want to go hiking. So I'm going to be in the mountains a little bit more and I might travel more. So all of a sudden, I'm being more strategic and saying, okay, well, this this model really isn't fit for purpose anymore. I can get a new one, and it'll do exactly it'll do a faster job or a, a more um, 
a more reliable job than maybe the older one, but it's not going to be ready for what I want to do with it in the future. So I need to go get an SUV or a truck, or I, I need to take a look at that more strategically. So that's why legacy modernization drives me nuts because it feels like it isn't strategic. It's kind of the same old, same old, but tell me, give me your reactions here. Tell me what you think. Yeah, I, I, I tell you, I, I like your analogy and, you know, and the way in which you think about it, because really, you know, legacy modernization, digital transformation, I think they're, they're, they're really two separate things. However, they can be combined if done, you know, correctly. I think this, this, the, the crux of this, though, in state government kind of goes back to the process by which we use in order to provide funding um, to, and I'll, and I'll just say a, a consolidated, which we were in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, a consolidated chief information office. You've got appropriated funding, and that appropriated funding, funding is what's called CapEx, right? capital expenditures. They want you to buy something that they know they can depreciate over a period of five years, right? CapEx. So they know how much it is over the period of time. And so when you look at modernizing, then you're really moving that CapEx model into really an OpEx model, what you need every single year. Now, in some instances, that may be a little bit more to get yourself to a new modernized framework or, you know, because you've got your transition costs, um, but it may be moving away from that CapEx model, which tends to cause people to say, well, your expenses essentially could be running, you know, so, so from a budgetary standpoint, I think there needs to be, you know, a lot of, of effort put into educating that CapEx to OpEx type of model and, and moving towards more of an OpEx expenditure than, than CapEx. So that's that's really the first thing. But from from the legacy modernization perspective, you know, look, we were running a mainframe in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. We had we had um, uh, you know one that was getting close uh, to uh, being replaced. We were running a bunch of different um, you know storage environments. We were running a bunch of compute and and memory environments. And really, we needed to get to a point where we had all these disparate things. We really had to streamline or modernize into one platform. We had to get our house in order first before we did anything else. So our modernization plan was in, was initially just taking a bunch of legacy things that we had kludged together over the years that were causing us challenges and then bringing it into a consolidated platform. Once you do that then, you have visibility and you have the ability then to then look at really modernization. So how do we take what we have, the applications that are running on this system, and then how do we look at the way in which a citizen would like to now consume that application? To me, that's modernization, right? How do we look at what the best of breed is on the market? And how do we then transition our environment to meet that requirement? So kind of two different approaches, right? Two different things. Um, it's it's somewhat difficult to kind of do them at the same time. To me, we needed to get our house in order first, which we I had a great staff uh, and, and, and team, and they were able to do that, um, put that together. And then we now set the conditions to allow us to look at those applications and actually bring it into, bring them into the 21st century.
I think that that's a really good description of it. And one of the things I, I do want to point out is because I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. I think one of the reasons why government and, and government doesn't get enough credit for this, frankly, one of the reasons why they were able to pivot as quickly as they did in a lot of areas is because they have modernized those those legacy platforms. Right. So, yes, was it not quite as strategic as it could have been? Sure. But had that effort not been put in and done, I think that that pivot or that that obviously abrupt stop to normalcy was not was not going to be facilitated whatsoever. Um, but one thing I, I do think is important is as governments are actually looking to modernize making sure you're taking a look at the future, right? You're not, you can't always predict the future, but I think that's, that's why you have to look at the future. I think you have to have a platform that you can build on and, and allows for those unpredictable situations to happen and give you that flexibility. So I think knowing you're not going to be able to predict the future, knowing anything could happen, especially in government, anything can happen and will probably happen at some point. Um, having something that you modernize onto that gives you that level of flexibility, I think is absolutely vital for, for mission success. Well, in, in, in quite frankly, I could throw number one in here also, because, yeah. you know, when you look at modernization, you know, a lot of the efforts we looked at to, to focus on them was, hey, where do we have potentially the biggest security risk, right? So so you, I think you're absolutely right. And in, 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 I think a lot of the organization had taken that initial step into uh, the modernization world at some level, which then allowed them to then pivot and be able to serve during COVID, which, you know, was, you know, monumental tasks. Let's move into number five. I think this one's so important. I think you've already touched on it a couple times and I didn't, I didn't expound and jump into it because I knew we were going to get there, but number five is workforce. And I think this is one that I think it used to get get overlooked. I don't think it gets overlooked anymore. I think it's, I mean, this is, this is the personification of that. Um, I think everybody knows how important it is, but I think understanding and, and defining why it's important and what can be done to kind of bolster it is another piece of the puzzle. And we we see a bunch of a bunch of technologies and modernization efforts happening. What do you think needs to be done to help make sure that the workforce doesn't get left behind when you are bringing in things like AI, machine learning, RPA? Um, and and other different technologies onto the enterprise. What needs to happen for that change management to be so su successful? I think sometimes um, there's a there's a bias uh, that that we have um, in state government, and I I will tell you we we kind of attacked it in the Commonwealth of Kentucky about you know must have a four-year degree before you join. Um, we couldn't do uh, things like apprentices and bring people on that perhaps were in uh, academic institutions. We took uh, we took a effective action. We started an apprenticeship program in the Commonwealth where we brought folks on. We brought high school students, not, not college students, high school students that could come in and be mentored. You know, I, I mentor a lot of individuals, uh, whether it be transitioning military and or 
you know, students in the high schools. And, and I talk to them about going ahead and serving, even if they're not going to go into service in, you know, in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, serving the serving their city, serving their county, serving their state in some of these positions so they get an understanding of what's going on. Because in a lot of instances, first off, individuals are already exposed to a lot of things that we need in state government uh, help with. And so, so remove that bias, hey, bring someone on you know, within the high school, et cetera, put them under your wing, have one of your sage individuals, you know, mentor or tormentor them as I, we, we laugh a little bit about, but have them mentor them, have them get the understanding. And then from, from your own workforce, make sure there are development plans for them. Um, you know, we had a, we had a meeting one time and I was talking about sending someone to get training and, uh, an individual who would be nameless said to me, well, but if they get trained, they may leave. And I said, well, if they don't, they may stay. And, it, <laughs> you know, in, in that fundamental discussion was, you know, you kind of flip the table on them. And, and so it's okay if somebody learns, they help us, and then they move on in their lives because now we get someone else that we can replace them with. So I, I think allowing for growth, allowing for redundancy in the workforce, Cross-training is really important, right? Take the time to do that as a leader. And then also look at folks coming up, making sure that we are working with the next generation so we don't have a gap and we're bringing those folks on. And look, I, I, a guy that's been to school a lot, it, schooling is important, but getting an individual in and getting them excited about what they're doing and then you know, and then allowing them to go and get, you know, a degree maybe after that, et cetera, is really important also. I've had this conversation with my wife a fair amount. She's a, she's a STEM educator, uh, K through five. And we talk about that all the time is kind of what, what, it, what is her role and kind of how is it evolving, right? Because you get people coming into the workforce and yeah, you need to know, you need to know what these technologies are, but even more so you need to, you need to understand how to critically think and work alongside these technologies. Um, and you use the word, you use the, the term next generation. I mean, that is the ultimate next generation workforce. And if they are kind of at the ground floor working with these technologies, but also learning how to think critically, which is, I think what my wife would say is, is what her job is, is to help these kids learn how to think and, and kind of engage with these technologies at the same time. To me, I think that's the type of workforce you're looking to grow. And then one of the things I think government really has the ability to, and I don't know if they fully harnessed it yet, but I think I think they can, and, and, and I think some pockets they are, is you can get so much hands-on experience by going in, into government, especially out of college, because you get the ability, because there are so many workforce gaps, you get the ability to be on the front lines of some things that you wouldn't otherwise have if the private sector is your initial destination. And I think that's certainly a draw. I mean, we, we could, there's so many areas of workforce we can get, get into, right? We can talk about what you were saying around um, skilling and, and reskilling. You can talk about uh, recruitment and retention. I think it, all of those things kind of fold into this one. And it's why I was excited to talk about this topic. I think it's one that really, again, is, is so vitally important. It's, it's about the people and empowering them, but then, you take a look at something you mentioned earlier, right? We were talking about AI 
um, and generative AI more specifically and how you can have that working alongside contact center, right? So you can see how technologies like that can not only support but empower the employee to think strategically. And the question that I think is out there is, are they ready to do that? And I think that's something that government and not just government, but honestly, all industries, because we're technology moves way too fast just to say government is slow. I think it's it's impacting everybody really, really quickly. And is is and are these industries, are they ready to keep up with that advancement? Because workforce goes far beyond this conversation goes far beyond just government, in my opinion. Well, and, and and just one more thing, I think it's really important to add to this. Uh, and, you know, we talked about the early workforce folks, right? The early, early on. One of the things I think is a, is a harsh reality is we have individuals in government that the technology has passed them. We have to do a serious a look introspection into ourselves because and tap out if somebody is is not performing the way they should be or if the technology has passed them we have to we have to as leaders be able to make that assessment whether it's internally or with the people that are working with you because if they are not continuing to move on and continuing to understand new te new technology they're only hurting the constituents that they're serving. So there's a top end, right? There's a top of the spectrum, right? And then there's at the start. And, and we have to understand that and we have to be sensitive to it. And we also have to be, it has to be a reality to folks that, look, if you've reached a point where, look, this is passing you by, let, let that next person come in, right? And, and tap out. Um, and sometimes that doesn't happen the way it should, at least what I've seen. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Or be willing to raise your hand and say, Hey, I need to learn more about this to make sure I'm effective. Right. Send me to school, right? Send exactly. me to school. Yep. All right. Let's move into number six, data management and data analytics. I don't need, I don't think I need to even stress the importance of this, right? Um, I mean, you, you compound this with everything else, especially that AI, uh, line item number three, but I think the important thing that people often don't think about. They, they say it's about the data, it's about the data, it's about the data. What does your data hygiene posture look like? Can you trust the data? And I think that data management piece is, is so vitally important because bad data in, bad data out, or bad analytics out. What are your thoughts here around data management, data analytics, and, and what was your kind of perspective or your approach when you were in Kentucky? So one of my one of the three positions that that I hired uh, to augment my staff was a chief data officer, um, and and then built the staff around that because when when you're talking about governance, you're talking about cleansing, you're talking about you know how do you establish a data sharing agreement amongst the organization? Uh, we had the value of having uh, KY stats, so. Uh, already established statistical organization to do analytics for us that would feed information, you know, to any one of the agencies that, you know, that that needed it. But 
from my perspective, they were only having access to portions of the data that was de-aggregated. So how do, our chief data officer was clearly focused on how do we look at all elements of the data, establish a data sharing agreement amongst the cabinets, work with the legislature, a, a specific one of their representatives, we worked on an open data sharing agreement. What could be openly shared with constituents, academic institutions, so they can do further research? And then how do we ensure the cleansing of their data? You know, when I when I ask the question of who owns what particular piece of data within the Commonwealth, you know, I would get a couple different answers, right? I mean, who should own driver's license, right? Primary key, driver's license, or who owns social security number? Who owns, you know, residents? Those are all real critical uh, questions that you have to ask yourself and then formulate the policies and the data sharing agreements around them. Once you understand that piece of it, and then you start to get to a point where you're working together and making sure that citizen has a say-so in what data is being shared, which is critical, right? You wanna make sure that. And if not, then how do we de-aggregate the data to a point where it's anonymized so that we are not you know, sharing data that shouldn't be shared? So critically important role, very important to you know provide feedback to the legislature you know one of the things that i was a strong proponent for was does a piece of legislation have metrics that measure the success right and to me that goes back to the data that we had within the commonwealth going back to kind of when you were in seat and you were working alongside your peers and even now i mean what what you're seeing are you seeing that type of formalized structure in in a lot of states not only am I seeing the hiring of the chief data officers, what I really enjoy, and Karen, my uh, my or, or Krishna, my my chief data officer, uh, participated in a larger group of chief data officers. Um, and that that's just so inspiring to be able to have individuals, yeah. you know, beyond the NASIO events that we had, um, but have those individuals get together on occasion, share the things that they're doing. And then potentially, you know, if you think about this ultimately, and, you know, these were a couple of the things that we were bouncing around, you know, why is it that, you know, let's say incarceration data should not be shared, you know, with with our border states, you know, six states border con uh, Commonwealth, right? Um, unless I'm wrong, six states, unless that's changed. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> um, uh, how do we share that data, right, correctly? Uh, now, some of that can be shared from larger federal databases down, but, you know, how do we share economic data? How do we, you know, we had a bunch of folks that were living in Ohio that were coming to the Commonwealth in order to work. How do we share tax data, et cetera, correctly? So, so that was really neat, um, you know, really from my standpoint, point of being able to and Brian be able to get together. That was that was extremely fun. Excellent. Well let's move into number seven. Um, um this one's I think quickly become a larger priority and I'm I'm really fascinated actually to get your opinion specifically because Kentucky does obviously they have cities but they have a lot of rural areas. And I think one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was the access to broadband or wireless connectivity there were there were have and have nots. I mean, we saw some really uh, some really ingenious things that that government did to try to get access to people um, driving school buses out to rural areas with hotspots, things things like that. I think a lot of people heard stories around that. 
Um, so this is one that you certainly might have more familiarity with. And, and digital equity is obviously something that's also bubbled up here. Um, that's certainly woven into the fabric of, of connectivity access and broadband access. So what are your, what are your thoughts here? So when I first got to the Commonwealth, there, there was a, a project from a previous administration about broadband that, that was in the works that, you know, they were attempting to address that. And, and I, I will tell you from, from an academic perspective, uh, David Couch, who's the K through 12 CIO, had done a phenomenal job of ensuring those academic or those school districts were wired. I think it, I think he's won a couple different awards to make sure K through 12 actually achieved uh, the the success of having uh, broadband at those school districts, which which is just phenomenal to the effort there by him and his team. Uh, and then largely what we were doing in the Commonwealth for what what we owned, right? So, you know, if there was any towers or any space, uh, we were consistently working with, you know, what our providers there. I know we were a, a first net customer. So in those areas where we needed priority, we, you know, we had the ability to to get, you know, service, uh, priority service given any one of the issues. But but Kentucky is rural and there is a lot of coverage area and, you know, it's just a matter of continuing to work with the service providers to roll that out and address. I know during the pandemic, we uh, I worked with a couple of the folks in the Lex One facility to get to get devices out to individuals that needed to have that capability. So so that's it's it's always top of mind. And and as far as the equity of it is, I believe that every individual should have access to broadband um, and be able to to get delivered academic classes either remotely or on some type of a device across the board. It's the way of the future. So, um, you know, it, it just, it's commonplace, right? You, yeah. you, you keep trying to provide it, uh, it at every point to those rural areas. Yeah. It's a fundamental utility. I think that's something that the, the pandemic really showed. Um, all right, we're in the home stretch. Uh, let's get into number eight, identity and access management. I think there's, when I see this, I, I, I think two things, obviously. The first is is the access on the employee side, right? The making sure that your systems are locked down, secure and all of that. And then on the identity side, I also think of the identity proofing. I mean, we we look at the pandemic, we've mentioned that a couple of times. You saw the the fraud that happened in a lot of different states, um, but uh, but I think there's so many different programs that require identity proofing, identity verification um, that I know we personally work on at the state level, um, at the federal level uh, with SoCure. But I know you you probably have some some intimate knowledge of some of these programs and the importance of it. So what is your reaction to number eight and and identity and access management? Yeah, so from from you know just sitting in the chair. First off, I think SoCure is a leader and and um, you know love what you all are doing uh, in this space um, because, you know, fraud is, you know, is prevalent and, and the better we can know the individual that's attempting to log in, the better off we are. But, you know, we had roughly about six identity or uh, excuse me, six single sign-on frameworks for identity management engines. You know, it was just, it was just a lot, right. From, from our standpoint, 
we worked on providing an enterprise capability of going to one solution. Um, I know we had made a decision regarding that. We're moving in that direction. Um, there was, um, you know, obviously after I left, there are decisions that have been made. I don't know if that stayed on or not. Fundamentally, I think that it is the number one priority for people accessing systems remotely. You should have some type of single sign-on, identity access management, verification. We've seen that with unemployment insurance, how how big of a challenge that was. We've we've finally fixed that in 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 states, which is I think the you know a, a big big undertaking, but but it has accomplished. But it should permeate across all of our citizen-facing systems. Uh, we should have that capability, and it should be tied to a validated identity. Um, and there are tools and 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 companies out there that are the best of breed right now, and every organization should have that on on their to do list to get that accomplished. Yeah, I, th I think we're seeing more and more that this is becoming a, a a need to have, not a nice to have anymore. And again, I think a lot of things have have kind of pushed uh, leadership in that direction. All right, let's look at number nine, cloud services. I think, again, um, you talk about interweaving. I think the importance of cloud can't can't really be stressed enough, but I also think the security of those different, uh, different cloud applications that you're leveraging is certainly paramount. But when you see cloud services, I, I mean, one of the, let, let, me, let me take an initial reaction here. I see it as number nine. I think one of the reasons why it's at number nine is because it's become more commonplace. I think that move to the cloud isn't something that government needs to do. It's, it's government is doing it, has been doing it. And I think that's why it's kind of gone down the list. I don't think it means it's not important to them. I think it's just something that they're already operationalizing. But t tell me your reactions here. Yeah, I think, uh, I think first off, your point about becoming commonplace, I think absolutely. I think if you look across the states right now, uh, there's some form of cloud strategy. Uh, you know, I, I think back to to my time and, you know, and I would always talk about our data center, you know, this is our cloud and then there's the cloud, right? We had four floors, the fifth floor was the cloud. And I said, and, our, and, and part of our goal was taking our cloud and doing what's right to put it into the cloud, which was the most economical. But again, that's that kind of becomes the shift from that CapEx model to the OpEx model, right? Because now, now we're spending, but, but, it's, but it's commonplace, just like electric, it's just like water, right? You turn on the switch, you know you have to pay for it. And so because of the pandemic and the transition of a lot of these applications, which then have moved to the cloud, we're now fundamentally comfortable with it. We understand the security. We understand it's secure or more secure in most instances than what you can provide in your own infrastructure. And it's constant, right? And so you look at the cloud providers uh, in the way in which they've approached business and the way in which they work with organizations, they're making it easier and they're allowing the complexity that used to be to be removed. And so you have individuals now that were that were initially working from data centers, right? In you know, in the Commonwealth, that now are working from home. Well, they're working from home and they're they're you know VPNing into you know the, the cloud, right? Or our cloud. Why you know what's what's the difference between going to the the cloud, right? And then the scalability, right? So your ability then to 
to be able to increase an application's footprint or be able to stand up an instance of something, be able to, to do some calculations or be able to do some testing and then turn it down without having to go by infrastructure in order for that to occur. The speed by which that innovative change can happen. And then back to a previous, you know, when we're talking about things related to AI and ML, you've already got cloud technology that already has those tools that are available out there instead of trying to build that internally on your own. So it's really now, and I don't want to say forcing, but it's really the transition, right? It's just like during COVID, the transition to working from home. It's that transition to the mindset that, hey, look, we're secure. Hey, look, tools are available. Hey, look, we can build it out there. And hey, look, it's less expensive. And I think that's the transition mindset that has occurred. Well, you did my my segue into number 10 for me because we're talking about transition mindset and kind of changing your approach. And number 10 is CIO as a broker or new operating model. Um, so obviously this is kind of bringing a different mindset to the role of CIO. I think that that role has certainly evolved, especially in the past decade, but I would argue in, in the past, it evolves every year. Um, so what's your reaction to number 10? I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, as, as I mentioned before about OPEX versus CAPEX, I think you look at every CIO now, they're thinking about their spend, which is this year's spend. And they're thinking about how do I work with the legislature, the appropriation that's coming down to make the realization that it's that it's now this this year's spend. But but with the realization that, hey, look, I don't have that depreciation. Hey, I don't have to worry about replacing and all the costs that are related to you know, that transition when we had to move to a new type of environment. And, and really, when you look at the cloud, your ability to go to, to those tools that are within that cloud provider, instead of worrying about third-party applications, worry, learning the technology of that cloud provider is really important because where you really gain benefit is once you understand how to do it organically, within that organization and use that tool set. You eliminate all of the other chaff that potentially comes with it, and licensing, et cetera, and then you have an organic application. So I think we as CIOs are really becoming the organization that's actually providing the on-ramp to allow that, that agency, that secretary, that, that, that application to be on that cloud environment and provide the best security around it. I love it. Hey, as we wrap up, I want to get into our uh, our final five questions. We'll do these rapid fire for you, Chuck. Um, what's Let's start at number one. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? Best advice I've ever gotten was focus on the people. They'll take care of the rest. And I think this goes back to uh, the way I grew up in the military is, you know, lead by example lead the people that are part of you, understand what they do. If you understand what they do, then they will ensure they take care of you. What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? Worst advice I've ever gotten was you don't need to change anything to be successful. Interesting. Yeah, I, I would agree. That's not good advice. <laughs> All right. Number three, who's somebody in history you'd like to have a conversation with? 
I'd love to have a conversation uh, with Mr. Ford when he was thinking about the vehicle and someone told him, you, you don't need to make the Ford vehicle. You just need a faster horse, right? <laughs> People would just, you just need to make a faster horse. You know, the mindset of an individual back then that was surrounded by, you know, a, a state of mind to think about, you know, the, the vehicle in and of itself and how it could revolutionize. I think that, I think it would be really interesting to have a conversation with Mr. Ford. That's a great one. Number four, what's inspiring you right now? The ability to continue to serve constituents, no matter what position you're in, um, just keeps me going because it's it's there's an old saying those that know are highly amused by those that think they do and when you look at it you look at industry and when you go out and when you're talking with folks when you really talk to them about the things that matter you start to see the people that really understand and some of them may be shrouded by maybe a leader that's that that has their way and you know the right way. And so your ability to then, you know, talk to that individual, to connect with them on a level that their own leader can't connect with them on, and then help them. That's tremendously inspiring. I love it. And the last question that I have for you, where do you go to self-educate? Where do you go to get smarter? So I do a lot of reading. Um, I would ask you, you know, kind of what's on what's on your bookshelf um, I just finished a finished a book that was inspiring to me um, by uh, an individual by the name of Greg Gatson. Uh, Greg Gatson, former military officer, we we actually went to the basic course together, and then to jump school, and then kind of parted ways. I was actually downrange in Southwest Asia when, unfortunately, an IED took his legs. But understanding what he went through and the challenges that were presented to him and the fight that still remained in his belly. Um, I think I think reading uh, is really important um, and reading a diversity of different things. You know, a lot of people say, go read tech books, et cetera. Read diversity in, in the things uh, that inspire you and then see how they apply to your day-to-day -day activities. Well, Chuck, I appreciate it. I can't thank you enough. I, as I mentioned on the top of this uh, this episode, I've been waiting to have this debrief on the top 10, and it's certainly uh, this is certainly exactly what I wanted. It lived up to kind of my, the weight. So thank you again for being willing to kind of dive deep into these for me. You bet. It's wonderful. Thanks, Brian, for having me on. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.